brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. I really enjoyed that last interview with Matthew Bentley and it's getting a good response thus far. Yeah, super cool. Uh, this episode, we have Andy Grant coming on, the author of You'll Never Walk. I'm looking forward to him, um, especially because, and I think we'll uh, get into his background more when he comes on, but we've had British SAS guys on. I'm pretty sure we've never had a British Royal Marine on the show or... Uh, featured on the site that i even know of, right um, i think uh, i'm having to go back 300 some odd episodes but <laughs> i believe we had a australian sas member on who was a royal marine before okay maybe i'm trying to i, I can't quite remember but no british royal marine well he was a british royal oh, marine. okay okay yeah, because they got that whole like commonwealth thing going on i'm wondering who that is though that now well, I, I think it might might have been rob Maylar. Um, so that was pre my time. Yeah, that was a that was a, wa- a ways back. Yeah, we should get Rob on again sometime. He's an interesting. I'm guy. I'm up for getting anybody that you want on, man. Uh, oh, so uh, first thing I'll address that was just funny. I when when the news came out of this, I got bombarded with tweets that Dennis Rodman will be <laughs> in Singapore during the summit of Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un, of which they're now saying he will not be there. I think the White House said. He may be in Singapore at the time. He will have nothing to do with the meeting. I would, I would sure, <laughs> yeah. I would hope. Reality <laughs> TV. Here we are. Uh, are you still going to try to get him, book him on the show? Oh, I've, yeah. I've, I've emailed. We'll say, you know, it would be a long shot probably, but I'd love to get him on. But even there's, there's news articles coming. So this is also why I'm getting a ton of tweets. There's news articles coming out about this, c- citing the Big Bang in Pyongyang, saying, like, if you want to see – how Dennis Rodman will act as a diplomat overseas. Watch that movie, and you will see like how poorly behaved he is. <laughs> you know, so um, I, I wish like we could just give him like your phone number, like slip it in his pocket, and then you know he gets like six scotches deep, and like he'll uh, be sitting at the bar and just pull out your number and like just call you. And, you know, do the interview like that. I think that I think that's the best shot, honestly. I bet if you call him, though, at uh, or, you know, if he had our number, he's probably like that at all times, just out of control. Uh, you know, watching that movie, there there was no time where he seemed like a normal Dennis Rodman. I've listened to interviews with him, though, but even like when he um, because I am a fan of the guy, but even when he uh, became an NBA Hall of Famer, it was a it was a very bizarre speech. If you guys look really. Up. Uh, yeah, he like got very emotional, started crying, uh, and not the way that they normally do. He was like, I wish I took the game more seriously because, you know, he was just a interesting guy, but uh, yeah, I'd love to have him on, but it's just, I, I, I certainly have no one to blame but myself for this and I'm not mad about it at, at all, but like I've become known for any time <laughs> news happens regarding Dennis Rodman. That's like my, my new claim to fame. And I still haven't seen the documentary. Yeah, well, watch it just for pure entertainment. Uh, Going on at the site right now at softrep.com, our author Nick Kaufman, former Marine, who did an amazing job covering what happened with the Marsoc 7, and you can check that out out in our interviews with uh, Fred Galvin, Marine Corps Major. So the latest update on this is that the guys affected want to wear a pin on their uniform uh, yeah, they want, their, they want their badge. Yeah, and to symbolize this, and, and it's being shot down. Yeah, um, it, it's just a question of, you know, like any other one of these special units, whether you're a SEAL or a Ranger or whatever, we all have our own insignia and, uh, you know, patches, badges, etc. And I guess the MARSOC team, the first, the original MARSOC guys have been denied that thus far. Yeah, um, I mean, what's your take on that? 
I mean, it sounds like it's purely political. I mean, we've been going, we've had, we've had Fred Galvin on the show. How many, like two or three times yeah. now? I mean, Twice, it, I there's a lot of politics wrapped up in it. And, um, and it's interesting as Nick Kaufman sends these emails out to these, uh, Marine PAO officers and they're like, it's like a mixture of, um, them ignoring him or being completely oblivious it's uh, it's weird, but it's it's politics. I mean, and it's not just politics. It's it's like very personal. Like there's some personal grudges going on in the Marine Corps. So the thing is, these guys are now exonerated, but it seems like it was just from what I, from what I've read of Nick's pieces, it was done quietly, and they don't really want yeah, to acknowledge the, it more. Yeah, than the that. Marine Corps wants this to all go away. Yeah, I mean, I am very glad these guys were exonerated. That's first and foremost because. The problem is, and, and Fred uh, mentioned this during his interview, like, you know, if, if you Google Fred Galvin and he's trying to find a, a job elsewhere, you know, in, in the civilian world, this is what he's known for, unfortunately, uh, things that he did not do. So, yeah. And that rumor, uh, the myth about what happened out there persists to this day. Yeah. Well, luckily, we have pieces out there now. So, I mean, even if you Google more Sox 7, if you look up Fred Galvin, some of the first stuff that comes up is Nick's pieces along yeah. with our interviews with uh, Fred Galvin. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad we could do that. Uh, nothing else uh, major going on that, that we have to cover. Uh, I was looking this morning. We both had uh, strong feelings on there was an article on the Daily Caller that Facebook and Twitter and Amazon will be partnering with the Southern Poverty Law Center in combating what they consider hate speech. And they're basically uh, being used as a um, like arbiter, not not um, specifically them. They're probably working with other groups, it sounds like. But they're one of these groups they're going to work with to combat hate speech. And yeah, it's probably just PR. Like they want to bring them in and be like, oh, look, we're fighting racism. We're checking that block. But the Southern Poverty Law Center has like zero credibility. They've, it's amazing how they've been able to position themselves as the entity that defines what hate speech is and what racism is and all of this. But they don't have any real credibility. If you go and you look at their research, and I, I have in the past, they make these claims. They'll say, you know, since Barack Obama was elected, uh, you know, white supremacy groups have seen their membership expand 3,000 percent. And you're like, huh, really? OK. So you go and look at the reports that they publish and you look at the statistics that like that, like a 3,000 percent, you know, increase or something. You look at that and you're like, OK, so where does it show how they gathered this data, where it came from? how it was analyzed, like any kind of like real credible organization would be transparent about their statistical methods. And the Southern Poverty Law Center is not. And what it tells me is they're just making shit up. Yeah. Would you say it's almost like the, what, what is like the famous statistic? One in four women are like raped on college campus or, you know, and no backing to this. Like there's a lot of statistics that go around that. I don't know the source of them or it's just poorly worded. Uh, or cleverly worded in a way that, you know, s- sexual harassment is defined as, like, inappropriate l- looking at someone. Or, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center in particular is just notorious for taking things that are not that big a deal, maybe, yeah. maybe bad but not a big deal, sure. and blowing it way out of proportion. They may, If you listen to the stuff they say, you'd think we have, like, the Third Reich <laughs> marching down the streets of fucking Lexington Avenue out here. Yeah. It's just not what's happening. That's not the reality of what's going on in this country. Um, so this ties into our writer Bill Vasilis right. uh, getting Facebook jailed for honoring um, what was yesterday as we're recording, recording D-Day. Uh, it was a picture of, I believe, American soldiers, right, holding the Nazi flag. Yeah, um, it was 101st Airborne. And um, they had captured a Nazi flag, you know, during the D-Day landings or, or in their case, you know, um, parachuting in. Um, and, you know, it's just a classic uh, World War II photo of, you know, our troops holding a, a Nazi flag, a swastika flag, um, just like, you know, you'll find um, pictures of our troops in Vietnam holding North Vietnamese or uh, even um, Russian, you know, Soviet Union flags. Uh, typically, you hold them upside down when you capture them. Um, with a swastika, I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, the same true. either way. But regardless, Bill posted this picture up on the anniversary of D-Day, you know, um, 
because, you know, he's European. He's quite glad that they don't live under the Third Reich. He's, I think he's quite grateful that, uh, that we helped liberate uh, Europe from the Nazis. Um, and they, uh, Facebook, I'm sure it wasn't a person. It was probably just an algorithm that they see a, a swastika. It, it analyzes the pictures and they're like, ban it yeah. and ban him. Um, but I, I, on the other hand, does it really matter if it was an algorithm or a person? If it was a person, probably they're getting the same marching orders as the algorithm. They're being told ban anything Nazi, Nazi stuff's unacceptable. So it, it you know, you're, you're painting with this very broad brush. Um, but meanwhile, we all know there's all sorts of vile shit on Facebook that they don't censor that just goes unchecked. Yeah. And uh, so what they're doing, if the idea is anything with a swastika, you, you get rid of That means, you know, instead of all historical photos. Exactly. We're, we're just going to delete history. We're going to ignore history. Uh, and it's, it, it's actually kind of a callback to the last episode where I talked about any Nazi imagery in Germany for whatever reason uh, whatever the context is banned. Well, there, on one hand, you could say, you know, may, it, it's an accident, right? It's an algorithm that's designed um, to curb hate speech on Facebook, on social media. So maybe it has a, a good idea behind it. Um, but another way you could interpret it is, as you said, it's erasing history. The same mentality um, that we've talked about in the past when you're tearing down uh, Civil War monuments, We're just going to delete that from the memory banks. Yeah, and some offensive stuff in our history, depending on the context, should be shown to say this was a part of our history. I mean, one one thing I could think of that people find very offensive today is, you know, white people in blackface. Should we we get rid of all the historical, you know, showing that this was something that was accepted in America at one time and we acknowledge and we learn from, uh, you know, or... If something is put up that's historical, you know, like the famous Amos and Andy and stuff like that on Facebook, are they just going to shut it down and act like this never happened? Because I don't think that's the right way to look at history, to just erase it. You know, what do we, we, what we else? should talk about it and learn from what it. What else do we put down the memory hole? Um, you know, the genocide of uh, Native Americans? Yeah. Um, you know, the Holocaust? I mean, what, what, what do we disappear? How much are we going to disappear? How are we going to handle these things? And... Right now, you know, we have uh, some social media companies that have basically created a monopoly on that industry. Um, I'm interested to see when, like, some antitrust cases kick in um, against, like, Facebook and Twitter and and maybe some of these other platforms. Um, That'll be interesting to see. But right now, they kind of have a stranglehold on social media. Oh, yeah. And And, and even the the dating apps. I, I mentioned it on Power of Thought, I think, with Brandon. Uh, or I might have just told them off air, to be honest. Uh, yeah, you know about Bumble, the dating app? No. So on, on the dating app... I'm married, bro. I don't know th- about this any is of true. this stuff. On the dating app, Bumble, uh, if you have a picture with a gun, no matter the reason, if you're at SHOT Show, all right, and you're you know holding a gun, you're a gun enthusiast, you are kicked off the platform. Wow. I'm yeah. surprised Facebook hasn't done that yet. Yeah. They probably will eventually. Um. Yeah, no, I walk, walking around uh, New York, there are these ads um, for a dating app called Squirts. Did you see those? No. <laughs> it's, it's a dating app for gay guys. <laughs> well, they were It's the a first, very traumatizing ad. <laughs> they were the first to do it. It was, um, what was it called? Grinder. Grinder was, was, the, yeah. was the original, like, Tinder. It was for gay men. Yeah. So, look, I'm all for people starting whatever platform they want. But as you said, it is, it's going to be hard, I would think, at this point to create something like Facebook that combats it. We're, we're all already on there. <laughs> like, there's nothing that's, that's going to be as popular anytime soon, I don't think. I mean, then again, we thought MySpace was going to stay forever. But this, Facebook has definitely shown a lot more longevity. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd personally like to see, I would love to see alternative platforms come to the forefront I'm like I'm ready for one that's like on an adult level. I feel like all the social media platforms and I and we discussed this on the last podcast. It turns us all into assholes and everyone on there, not everyone, but most people are the loudest voices. It's like a bunch of 13-year-olds. Yeah. They're actually adults, but they seem like a bunch of 13-year-old <laughs> kids. Like I'm ready for a communications platform where, you know, we have some like more intelligent uh conversation or a more mature way of interacting with one another. And uh, it doesn't seem that, you know, the Facebooks and the Twitters and them are, are, are doing that right now. Um, but then again, I mean, it's also, 
a technology is a technology and it depends on how the people use it, how, how you use that technology. Um, you know, you can get on to, there are like various Facebook groups yep. that are dedicated towards um, a profession. Um, like I'm on one, uh, or I might be on a couple actually that are for deep sea divers, for instance. And it's really cool. I'm on another one that's for, uh, it's actually for people who operate ex, uh, excavators, like heavy machinery, and they're all over the world. And, um, and, and they're posting videos of like, here's my work. I dug this, you know, five kilometer trench. We're building a new gas line. Like, it's really cool, actually. Um, I'm a lot less sophisticated. I'm in a group for fans of Benny Vincent, the guitarist from Kiss. Well, I mean, but that's still that's still a hobby. That's yes. something that's an interest. And, you know, maybe all the people there are there to talk about Kiss and they think that's really cool rather than uh, than bullshit. Yeah. Uh, There's another interesting one. I got into a, one of these groups um, for a video game. I think it's for uh, the Elder Scrolls series, which I played when I was a kid. I do not have time to play those games, unfortunately, anymore. But when I first got on there, it was interesting because it was packed full of alt-right propaganda <laughs> and people making like memes from this game. And if you went and looked at all the profiles, it was um, uh, of the people who posted all this like alt-right stuff. It was like a hot Israeli girl living in Ukraine. Okay, how probable is that? Yeah. And you start looking at this. Is this a real person? And as Facebook cracked down on, um, on Russian bots and uh, Russian disinformation campaigns and such, um, you go into that group now and it's totally different. Hmm. All that alt-right shit is out um, because all the people who were posting in there, posting that nonsense, were Russian bots, I believe. That's what was going on. That's funny. Um, but it's also interesting, like, why the fuck... Like, what was going on in the minds of these people at the GRU in Moscow or the FSB? And they're like, I got it, Boris. We're going to target the video game kids. You know, we're going to post video game memes and destroy America from within. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's a part of what they were doing. They realized that, that that was like some segment of American society that was susceptible to attack. Yeah, it may have been effective. Who knows? Um but we do have Andy Grant standing by, so I'm looking forward to having him on, and uh, let's dial him up. Joining us for the first time on SoftRep Radio, former British Royal Marine Commando, author of You'll Never Walk, Blown Up in Afghanistan, he became the world's fastest single-leg amputee, is Andy Grant. The book just came out. We're excited to have you on, and uh, first and foremost, uh, thanks for coming on, and as I was saying to Jack during the intro, I, at least as far as I've been on the show, I've never spoken to a uh, British Royal Marine. So before we even get into your specific story, uh, I'd be interested in hearing some background in just the British Royal Marines in general. Yeah, so in, in, the, in England, we have the uh, Royal Marines, which is one of the most elite amphibious fighting forces in the world, really. It's the toughest and longest, hardest training we have here in the UK. So for me, I was really competitive as a youngster uh, when it comes to joining the, the military I thought there's only one thing I want to go for and that's the longest and hardest training and that was the Royal Marines it's 32 weeks of basic training and at the moment only men are allowed in the Royal Marines and then from on, from on from the Royal Marines it makes up quite a large percentage of our special forces so it's quite a tough regiment to get into and I think you guys are quite proud, correct me if I'm wrong, that isn't the Royal Marine training the longest infantry training course in the world? It's definitely the longest training in the UK. I'm not sure whether it's the world, but definitely it's the longest piece of training here in the UK. Like I said, it's 32 weeks long. And at the end of training, we have four commando tests, the last one being a 30-mile run, carrying about 50, 60 pounds worth of kit. And what is the, for our listeners who are probably hearing this for the first time, what's the um, the task of the Royal Marines? I mean, is it comparable to what American Marines do? Yeah, I think so. It's pretty similar. Essentially, we are just like most infantry units, but we've also got the specialist role of being able to go, obviously, via, via our Royal Navy. Uh, so we're, uh, we're an elite amphibious fighting forces, as in beach landings. We're also trained, obviously, to jump out of the air. And I guess just the rapid rea rapid reaction force, yeah, kind of the first ones in, um, just behind special forces, really. 
So what made you want to join such a, a, a difficult elite unit? I mean, when you, you mentioned you were very competitive as a kid. I mean, were you just an athlete and you saw this as a big challenge to complete? Yeah, most definitely. I I didn't fancy having a normal nine-to-five job in an office. And my dad's a firefighter, so that kind of gave me a buzz for doing something a little bit different. And I always remember seeing an advert on the TV, and it said 99.99% need not apply. <laughs> straight away I think just being the cocky 17 year old at the time I thought yeah I could be the 0.01% and that just really drew me in I loved everything about it the brotherhood the camaraderie just everything about it just sucked me right in and I just wanted to be a commando from ever, ever since then I love that kind of revert, uh, reverse psychology recruiting <laughs> like you need not apply you're not going to make it uh, yeah well I'll yeah. show I'll show you I'm <laughs> <laughs> exactly it worked on me it was um, it was just such a yeah, it kind of inspired an adverse for me. And uh, yeah, I just, ever since then, I thought, you know what, I want to challenge myself. I want to see if I've got what it takes to be to be part of this kind of elite band of brothers. And uh, so you got to your, your unit after all the training. And uh, what was your first deployment? Yeah, so I went to, up to 4-5 Commando, who's, which, which are based up in Scotland. Uh, my first deployment was to Iraq. Where we were deployed to a place called Umkazar uh, on the Iraqi Kuwaiti border. I was actually stationed there with um, with some of you guys, your US Coast Guards. Basically, Umkazar was one of the big port towns, and it was my job there as a Royal Marine Commando to basically uh, look after camp security and to help train, coach, and mentor the Iraqi Marines, the Iraqi Navy. And we had some US Coast Guards there whose job was to go out to the oil platforms and basically keep an eye on that and make sure they were safe. So that was my first deployment to Iraq, which was pretty chilled out for me. I know uh, back when the invasion, uh, the US Marines had a, quite a quite a hectic tour there at Umkazar, but by the time I was there, it was really chilled out. I never had to fire my weapon once in anger. No real danger. It was much more about the hearts and minds and the training of the Iraqi Marines and the Iraqi Navy. And Umkazar is the port down in Basra, right? That's right, yeah. 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 And there's a, then there's a rail line that runs north. Supposedly, you know, if, if uh, Iraq wasn't in a constant state of chaos, you know, they could probably get things up and running and, uh, and supply the yeah, country. Yeah. Yeah, that was the thing about Iraq compared to, uh, obviously, Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I felt Iraq had so much potential. Yeah. You know, I, mm-hmm. If you kind of go on a vacation, uh, I've been on vacation to Turkey and, and Egypt, and it just always struck me as a country like that. That's got, you know, so much potential. It's like, like you say, so sort of it's sort of the problems out where there's obviously Afghanistan, which we're going to come on to, was, was like going back a thousand years in time. But yeah. certainly my time in Iraq, it was, um, yeah, I thought it had a lot of potential. And with the work I was doing with the Iraqi Marines and the Iraqi Navy, you know, at one time, there was a kind of bit of hope that, that something might have been able to be achieved. Yeah, no, I felt the same way. I mean, I was deployed to uh, Mosul and Tel Afar, so I was up in the northern part of the country yeah. and uh, working with the Iraqi SWAT team. And, you know, like you said, Iraq is a, a fairly cosmopolitan country by comparison to Afghanistan. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that kind of breaks my heart about that country is, you know, what it could have been. Yeah, totally, yeah. And, and, and like I say, we all felt the same. Um, but like I say, Iraq for me was a, was a quite chilled out time, and it was it was great because it was not only it was my first deployment, I was obviously I was working with in the US guys out there, and it was just a it just really opened my eyes up to the whole what it was like to be in the Marines and be on my first tour and, and work with international forces. So I had a, I had a great time out there. And uh, did you go back to Iraq, or, or was it to Afghanistan next? Yeah, no, I was just done, uh, done, just done five months in Iraq, and then it was back to the UK for a few years of uh, training just, just within the UK, and then it was Afghanistan, then my next tour. And that was where you uh, lost your leg? Yeah, yeah, so I was deployed into Sangin. Uh, I was in a place called uh, Fob Inkerman, so uh, the, the kind of joke we had at Fob Inkerman was, um, I'm not sure whether you guys have the same the same kind of phrases, but we had the Fob was called, was stood for Forward Operating Base. Yeah. I don't know whether you guys call them the same mm-hmm. yet. So uh, our one was called Fob Inkerman, spelled I-N-K-E-R-M-A-N, which we quickly renamed Fob Inkerman just because of the sheer amount of mortars and rockets that were getting fired at us every day. So it was a pretty, um, a completely different tour to Iraq. And yet Sangin at that time in 2009 happened to be the deadliest time for British soldiers. Mm-hmm. We lost 108 guys just in 2009 alone. Wow. And as you, you know yourselves, that the... Um, you know, the, the law of averages state that seven or eight are seriously injured for everyone that's killed. So for us Brits, 2009 was a, was a pretty tough year. 
and you know, a hundred British soldiers, you have to also, as Americans, we have to put that kind of in proportion or per capita. Um, you know, for like the instance, I think Denmark has lost a hundred something soldiers, which for a small country like that, that's a lot of people. Um, yeah. For a country like the UK, I understand the UK military is the same size as our Special Operations Command. I mean, our, our SOCOM is something like 75, 80,000 people. I mean, that's about the same yeah. size as the British military, isn't it? Yeah, I think our British military at the moment is about 90,000, so it's, it's not big at all, no. Yeah, so to lose 100 people in a year, I mean, that's a, that's a huge loss that you know, I'm sure you guys felt very deeply. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was just a tough time, and you could just tell that the... You know, things were shifting more to the IED. Um, it was just, um, it's just a really tough time. My dog just barked. Um, it was just a tough time um, at, at the moment, 2009. It was just, um, yeah, it was just crazy, to be honest. It was, you just knew every time you run on a patroller, you know, the likelihood of yourself or one of the guys getting injured was, it was just, it was just going to happen. It was, again, just a really, uh, really hectic time. And do you want to tell us a little bit about or what you're comfortable talking about as far as um, you know the incident where you uh, you were injured? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so it was just a routine foot patrol, one that we've done um, you know hundreds of times before. Uh, the, the mission on this particular morning was to get out uh, using the cover of darkness, get out in position, and basically get to a compound where we knew the Taliban were occupied, and basically use the cover of darkness to get as close to them as we could, and then essentially give them the good news when, when things like come. And we were patrolling for about 45 minutes or so. I was the second man in the patrol. And my best mate Ian was leading the way. And like I say, it was pitch black. You could barely see your hand in front of your face. And we got to an irrigation ditch. My best mate done a little bit of a run-up to jump over. I was just covering my man right behind him. As he jumped over the ditch, what he didn't see was a tripwire on the other side of the ditch in between two trees, which was attached to two mortars. Here they run off in a daisy chain and blew him forward and blew me back. At the time, I suffered, I think it was 27 separate injuries, from shrapnel to my face to broken elbow, broken sternum. It broke both lower legs, and I severed my femoral artery, which thankfully the guys on the ground had to turn a kick on there straight away. It saved my life. So did uh, you? was it one of these deals where you, know, you woke up in the hospital or were you conscious when they, they pulled you off the battlefield? Yeah, I, I remember the first 40 minutes or so. I remember it perfect. Um, and then after about 40 minutes or so, the helicopter came in, picked me up. And then that's when, as soon as I got placed onto the helicopter, that was when my memory goes. Then I, they obviously they put all the drugs and fluids in. Yeah, you got the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, the next thing I knew was I woke up two weeks later back in the UK. Wow. He performed two life-saving operations on me in Camp Bastion Hospital there. And then... My condition was deemed that serious that they got me back to the UK within 18 hours. So it was um, yeah, pretty surreal. To that's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. And yeah. if you can, Andy, I'd like to get into the story of them mm-hmm. amputating your leg, which plays into the title of your book, because I think oh, it's yeah. just incredibly, it's an incredible <laughs> story and incredibly ironic. Yeah, yes. Time, they actually managed to save the leg. But for me, you know, I was used to being in the Royal Marines. I was really fit. I was really active. And I just wasn't happy kind of being disabled, if you like. I just, which might sound crazy to know that I chose to amputate my leg, to amputate my leg, to not be disabled. But essentially the leg just wasn't, wasn't working. It wasn't. It would never you know, be just, what it was. Yeah, exactly. It was just it was so much nerve damage that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't live the life I wanted to live, basically. So I opted to have the amputation. Now I'm here in the UK. I'm a huge uh, football or you guys say soccer fan. And Liverpool is my is my team, and their logo is they have a what's called a live bird, which is kind of the, the kind of icon of our city, with the with the phrase "You'll never walk alone." So when I uh, woke up from my amputation, the surgeon said to me, "Andy, I've got some good news, bad news," and my heart, you know, shrunk. I thought, "Oh no, something's went wrong. There's been complications." He straight away reassured me and said, "No, listen, the operation went really well. The bad news is your tattoo looks a little bit different." <laughs> Right, okay. And he basically said, because of all the scar tissue on my leg, he had to pull the skin round from the back of my leg to create a decent stump. And in doing so, he cut off the word alone. So the tattoo now reads, "You'll never walk." Believe it or not. <laughs> your 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 friends in the in the Royal Marines must have like given you no end of shit over that. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we have a thing in the Marines called Commando Humor, so it was definitely one of the times that they had to draw on all the Commando Humor for all the all the banter that was going around after that. But <laughs> it was just it was just one of those things, you know, you just have to laugh about it. It was, thankfully, the operation went okay. So it was. Um, it just turned out to be a funny story. I, I want to get into, you know, you running after this and, and what you're currently doing and becoming a record holder, but I'm curious, were you a runner prior to all this? Was that a hobby of yours? Uh beyond just being a military guy? Not really, you know, I mean, like you know yourself, you know, you always keep up a high level of fitness being in the military, but I've got to be honest, I, I never classed myself as a runner or someone who was, I mean, I was never even even really one of the really fittest guys. I mean, I was always maybe in the top, the top half, maybe the top quarter, but I was never a super fit guy. Well, I mean, again, you're fit when you're in the Marines, but I mean, compared to the guys in the Marines, I was never super, super fit. And um, that's probably one of my regrets, really, that I didn't didn't run more when I had two legs to compare my times when I, as an amputee. But I guess for me, the reason I got into running was I, I didn't like the idea of, of, of being known as disabled. I hated the fact that, you know, I was so proud of being a Royal Marine Commando that I didn't like the fact that people were now looking at me thinking, oh, there's that guy Andy who used to be in the Marines and is now disabled or he's now got one leg. So I still had the same mindset in the Marines you know that I was this. You know, could, I could achieve anything. I jumped outside the comfort zone. Any any opportunity. So I just started running. I got into running and took part in you know, Prince Harry's Invictus Games. I think he came over and stole the idea of the Warrior Games that you guys have, and um, and basically started this thing called the Invictus Games, which is a mini Paralympics for injured soldiers. I was lucky enough to win a couple of gold medals in the 400 and 1500, and that then kind of boarded me into wanting to compete. But unfortunately for me, the longest distance um, for an amphibian, basically someone who's lost their leg below the knee in the Paralympics, is just 400 meters. And I mean, I know guys are, no guys are fucking rapid. They can run 400 meters in like 45 seconds or so. So it's pretty quick. Where myself, I'm a bit more of a long distance runner. So I've done a bit of googling to find out if there were any any other amputees in the world who liked running long distance. And I came across a Canadian guy called Rick Ball, and he could run 10,000 meters in 37 minutes 53 seconds wow and then that just became a pretty kind of um, you know just it was right that's it you know I want to that's a pretty kind of good goal to aim for and I want to go for that so that's what kind of got me, got me running again and give me some real focus a real aim and to try and to try and break 37 53 is there any advice you'd have for other amputees as far as the recovery process finding the right type of prosthetics um, I just think, you know, if there are other soldiers listening to this or, or maybe even somebody who was in a car crash or another accident, um, you know, any advice that you might want to pass on? Yeah, I think initially I, I, um, I done myself a lot of harm initially just trying to basically push it too quickly. You know, the leg wasn't properly healed and I was mm-hmm. trying to, you know, I was always looking to, to push on. And the big thing I've learned really, which is I tell any other amputees, is just listen to your body because, again, your mind is telling you that, you know, you can do all these things where, the fact of the matter is, you know, your body's changed a lot. So the thing is to just listen to your body in the early days and, you know, let things heal and, and don't push it too much too soon. But then once you kind of stump is healed, okay, then then the other advice, which was kind of sounds a little bit opposite, but would be just to push it. You know, once you know once your body's healed and, and you're okay, you know, don't let anything stop you and don't be scared to try new things. You know, since becoming an amputee, I've, I've learned to run, I've learned to ski, I've learned to surf. Wow. Being able to do all things, you know, by just giving things a go. So, you know, once you've got a good prosthetic fit and, you know, you, you work with your team and you, and you get that good fit and a good leg, then my advice would be, you know, don't let nothing stop you, you know, push the boundaries and, and, and try new things. Here in America, there's always been a lot of controversy regarding the healthcare system, even for veterans with the VA and guys who are amputees. There's sometimes issues with, you know, getting them the prosthetic that they need and, and deserve, of course. I'm wondering just how it differs in the UK as a, as a veteran in, in need of a prosthetic, and in your case, a, a very good one where you're able to run and, and do all these sports, as you were just mentioning. Yeah, that's interesting. So we had a similar problem where there was going to be a time when basically what the government did was promise all the veterans that they would receive the same level of care once they left the military. And then that wasn't happening initially, so I think there was a lot of arguments and back and forth. And then in the end, the government pledged a certain amount of money and basically made six specialist centres within the UK. So that now as a veteran, we've got six specialist centres that we can go to 
and the government have now matched the kind of same level of care that we received when we were in the military. So obviously we 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 have here in the UK the National Health Service. That's what healthcare is going to be anyway. So what it's meant really now is if you lose your leg in a car accident as a civilian, you'll just have the kind of basic NHS National Health Service care. Whereas as a, as a veteran, you will now get the kind of best, the specialist kind of care and equipment really. So it's worked out quite well for us veterans. Yeah, it's good to hear. I mean, because we've met guys like Mike Schlitz, for example, um, who have lost limbs in combat. And, you know, just basic things like uh, using appliances around your house. You have to change everything. And I'm sure for you, before you were able to run and all that, you had to change a lot of things in, in your lifestyle from having two working legs. Yeah, I mean... I was quite lucky in a sense. I mean, the kind of the lads, the lads, the lads around me just call my injury a twisted sock because it's only a below the knee amputee. It's nothing. It's nothing more. So that's the kind of banter that we have. But I mean, yeah, for sure. You know, getting a wheelchair to go around your house and and laying. I spent a lot of time on crutches. So in the early days, it's definitely it definitely takes a lot of things getting used to. But I think what well, the government is not always a great is not always great for the veterans here in the UK. But what we are lucky with is we have a lot of military charities. And I think a lot of the time here in the UK, the military charities pick up the pieces that the government mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes don't think of. What, what are some of the um, better charities over in the UK that have uh, that help out the vets? So we have one called Help for Heroes, which is a which is a pretty big one. We have a charity called Blesma, which is called the British Limbless Ex Servicemen's Association. So basically, looks after anyone who's lost a limb. Them two are probably two of the biggest ones. We also have actually the Royal British Legion. So, I mean, there's a lot of support out there for the guys if, they, if they're willing to come forward and ask for help. That's great. And, Andy, I also just wanted to ask you, um, it mentions in the book how you became a father, and I, I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, kind of moving past your, your injury or quote-unquote disability and, and just living your life as, as a man. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, one of the big things I talk about in the book, which I never really mentioned to anyone, was uh, I actually lost the ability to have kids uh, in the blast. Everyone would look at me and say that I'd lost my leg. I think that was the worst injury. But for me, not being able to have kids had the biggest impact on me. And then thankfully going through um, IVF and using a sperm donor, uh, I managed to have my little girl who's now three years of age. And the big thing for me is wanting to now, as I kind of live my life now as a motivational speaker, I just want to be a great dad to, to my mm-hmm. daughter and, and have her grow up knowing that anything's possible. So at any time I go for a run or I go skiing or surfing or any of these things that I do, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, you know, at least my daughter will just see me getting on with life and, and not, you know, not letting not, not, not letting nothing hold me back. And, yeah, I just live a pretty normal life with her now. We go to the park, we go swimming, we go to the beach, we walk the dog. You know, life is pretty normal, and it, it's great that she, she looks at me as, you know, only having one leg and thinks it's completely normal. Yeah. So it's, it, it's great. You, have, um, you know, she goes in my robot leg, and she tells her <laughs> friends that I got blown up, blown up by the bat. You know, it's, it's, it's funny and everything's just completely normal today which is great yeah that's the beautiful thing about a little kid that they they, they don't see uh, uh something weird they don't see something strange that it's just this that's daddy and that's how it is yeah exactly you know dad's got dad's got four different legs his running leg his swimming <laughs> leg his, his normal leg and, and that's completely normal and, and i think that's great that she's gonna grow up just thinking that yeah that's that's completely normal so yeah, she's she's done that's given me a lot of focus recently and, and, and I want to try and keep on living my life to the fullest so that she can see that, you know, anything is possible in life. Very cool. So Andy, what are you up to now beyond uh being an athlete? So the idea for me really for the next six months is just to try and push the book out as much as possible and, and yeah, just to try and make the book as, as big as big of a success as it can be. But again for me I'm I'm one of these people that I just like setting myself challenges and and you know, so I think give myself six months now come January come the start of next year I need to start planning planning new new targets new challenges uh, I was lucky enough to climb uh, Mount Ankankagua which is the highest mountain in South America Very I wouldn't cool. mind having a crack at doing uh, um, uh, the highest mountain in North America which is in Denali you got, you, there's got two names for it hasn't it I think in North America um, so yeah I'd, I'd like to try and get out there and climb that um, but yeah just I think for the next six months really just try and make the book as successful as possible and then get back to the, uh, the drawing board in the new year and, and set myself some challenges and, and just to show that anything is possible with the right mindset 
That's great. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering beyond, you know, we kind of went through the whole story of, of getting the, um, the prosthetic put on and everything, but psychologically, and, and it seems like athletics is what's helped you through all this, but psychologically, have you gone through any post-traumatic stress issues? I mean, that's a topic we talk about very often on this show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've not got a great experience in, in, in mental health in, in the sense that I've never been diagnosed with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so I've got no um, real experience in that. I've unfortunately had a few friends who've committed suicide because of that. Um, that's the kind of only experience I've got from, from just knowing people who've been through it. But, I mean, I've definitely been through some dark times. I When I got out, got out of the Marines, the big thing I realised was not having that self-worth anymore. You know, one minute I was this, you know, rough, tough, raw Marine yeah. commando, and the next minute I was getting spoon-fed by my dad. And that was a big that was a big change. And then once I, once I was medically discharged from the Royal Marines, I had a lot of time on my hands. and I started drinking a lot. I started gambling a lot. And got a mess in my personal life, but definitely sport and running has massively helped me. And um, and but I think definitely the the problem was was just keeping it all bottled up inside and not talking to people. And it wasn't so much flashbacks and post traumatic stress. It was more just the adjustments of you know once upon a time being a Royal Marine and now just being this kind of guy who used to be a Marine and now just kind of sits around his house all day and doesn't do anything. That was the big problem. Yeah, that hits guys really hard. Now, I, I've heard other people articulate the same thing, that you go from being a ranger or a Marine in your case, and then suddenly you're out on Civvy Street and you're not, you're, 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 you were physically this almost an elite athlete, but then you go from that to you know living this very inactive lifestyle because you, you're recovering from injuries. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's what gets mixed up a lot here in the UK anyway. People, people just think, oh, that's post-traumatic stress disorder and it's not because again I can, mm-hmm. I can talk about my time in Afghanistan all the time it doesn't bother me and I don't ever have flashbacks nothing like that but yeah I definitely did suffer with depression and there was definitely a, something not right mentally but again it wasn't PTSD and I think that's a big problem where people just put them all together and say oh yeah it must be PTSD and like you've alluded to then it's, it's, it's more just the fact that you were once upon a time this kind of elite soldier and now you're just you know this disabled guy on Civvy Street which yeah, it's, it can be quite hard to take yeah yeah it's like going from driving a race car to you know having a scooter <laughs> yeah that that's interesting <laughs> exactly. too though to hear someone who lost a limb in combat which is pretty much as, as horrifying as it could get say that you know you have not been diagnosed with ptsd because i think people would assume this guy has to have ptsd and that's not just not the way it works no exactly yeah i mean Again, I for the job now, I do motivational speaking. I talk about it all the time. You know, if I had PTSD, I wouldn't be able to talk about it all the time. I think it's guys who maybe have maybe done four, five, six, seven tours of Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, maybe they're guys who might suffer with it. But, yeah, people shouldn't assume that just because I've been blown up that I've got PTSD or, or just because I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps and life's not going great at the minute. Again, shouldn't always assume that it's PTSD. And I think that's what frustrates a lot of veterans here in the UK, that everything just gets bound together with being ptsd well it hits everybody you know it's a very individual thing and it hits people differently like you know maybe you were able to process the that experience in the blast but there might be some young kid who you know bandaged you up and brought you to the helicopter and he has some kind of ptsd issue because he saw what happened to his teammate i mean it's very interesting the way it can hit different people in different ways yeah, totally. I mean, I know the guy who saved me, the medic who saved me, uh, he's had a few problems over the years just because of things that he's seen. You know, he didn't only bandage me up, but yeah. he helped out a lot of other guys. So, I mean, for me, I remember the whole instant perfect of what it was like to get blown up, but I didn't have to put a tourniquet on my leg. You know, I didn't bandage me up. I was I was just lying there kind of thing. So, it, again, it can, like, you just hit the nail on the head. It can affect people very differently. And, um, like I say, I've just been lucky that I haven't suffered from PTSD and, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really unfortunate that in, here in the UK, there's there's not more can't be done for those guys, as, as it's kind of only just coming to a front now, really, that people are only really starting to recognize it now as a real problem. Yeah, well, you're a very inspirational guy. I think a lot of people are going to hear this, and whether they're a veteran or just someone who's going through a hard time, it, it helps when people hear a story like this, and and makes them feel, you know, if this guy could get through combat, losing a leg, you could pretty much get through anything psychologically. 
Um, the book is You'll Never Walk, Blown Up in Afghanistan. He became the world's fastest single-leg amputee. It just came out. It's available now everywhere. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Andy G. Bootneck. Um, any other things about the book that you want the audience to, to know uh, and that you want people to get out of this? Yeah, the big message, really, the, the lasting message I really want people to, to, to take away from this is that, you know, you don't, do not need to be blown up in Afghanistan and lose a leg to realize life can be tough. Yeah. You know, life can be pretty shit in city street and your personal life and your professional life. You know, I talk about losing my mum when I was 12. That, for me, was by far the hardest thing I've ever, I've ever been through in my life. So if people are reading the book, I'd like them to just try and take solace at the fact that, you know, no matter what life does throw you, you know, you can get over things and, it's not solely about the military or about losing the leg. It's just about trying to overcome life challenges and everything that life throws at you. And just, you know, surround yourself by good people. Have the right attitude in life. Work hard and hopefully you'll be able to overcome whatever challenges that are in front of you. Right on. I think we'll have to get in touch with Andy as the um, the next Remembrance Rumble happens, maybe to just come out. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, so every year in the UK, the uh, the company that this is a part of, Hurricane Media, uh, for Remembrance Day there, goes out and, and there's a boxing match between U.S. Uh, special operations military guys, or you should say U.S. military guys in general, because a lot of them turned out to uh, be Marines this past year, mm-hmm. versus some uh, British SAS guys, and it's just a great event you know that what? we do I each year charity. Yeah, yeah. What were you saying? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I think I've I think I've heard about this before. Yeah, I think I was yes. If, if you're again. familiar with uh, Big Phil Campion, he's a he's one of the big guys behind it. Yeah, I think I've seen him doing talking about stuff on social media. Yeah. Very cool. So maybe you can come out uh, the next Remembrance Day. Yeah, no, that sounds cool. And like you say, I'm, I'm in the states uh, normally a couple of times a year, so it'd be great to come over and. Uh, Catch up with you guys. Oh, yeah. Well, they they do this in the UK, so that's why I brought it up. But yeah, if you're ever yeah, in yeah, the States, yeah. absolutely as well. Awesome. Yeah, please do. Drop us a line the next time you pass through New York. No, that'd be awesome, lads. Thanks very much. Very absolutely. cool. Thank you, Andy. Oh, thanks for having me. All, all right. Guys, all the best. Have appreciate a good one, Andy. Well, appreciate Andy coming on with us. Once again, if you want to check him out, it's Andy G Bootneck at Twitter and Instagram. What an inspiring guy, inspiring story. And whenever, whenever I hear from guys like that, whether it's uh, Joe, Chap- uh, Joe Kapacheski, hard name to say, or, <laughs> um, or Mike Schlitz, it does remind you that, at least for me, it's, it's just that message of, you know, honestly, you haven't seen shit compared to, like, what these guys have been through. And if they can get through this, you can get through anything. So I think it's just a message everybody needs to hear. Whether you're a combat vet or a civilian, he is right. Everybody goes through certain struggles, and I think reading about other struggles is therapeutic. Yeah, I was writing about uh, Joe Kapicheski a little bit in my book um, because you know I, I was there for some of that, um, and I remember after he got blown up and and he was released from the hospital. I remember him coming out to see us in the uh, when we were training out at the shoot house. And he came up on crutches. I'll never forget this. <laughs> Joe Kapicheski, like apologizing to us, like saying, "Like I'm sorry, guys. I'm not going to be there on this next deployment, <laughs> but the one after that, I'll be there." And I was like, "Who is this guy? <laughs> like this guy is like telling us he's he, he's got blown up. He, he ended up having to have um, one of his legs amputated." And I'm like, where do these people come from? That this guy is such a hard charger that he, he's like. Yeah, sorry, bro. I'm not going to make it on this one, but uh, I'll, be, acor- I'll be good to go the next one. According to him, having a prosthetic, it's actually like now that he knows you know how to walk on it and everything. I'm sure it wasn't the same before, but he he would say it's actually advantageous. From what he said, you know, he's like, because it could easily be replaced. Anything happens to it, I just get on a new True. one. True. Yeah. So we got to get him on the show sometime. Uh, with that, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our crates have been Emerson Knives, a Blackhawk Industrials medical pouch, and cool stuff like a custom playing card set from an exclusive photo shoot we did of some models with guns. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. And gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. 
Once again, that's crateclub.us. For your dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. Um, I just saw the video that Tim Kennedy did with his two dogs enjoying the box. Uh, so check that out. It's kuna.dog. Uh, once again, C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. And we have a new Inside the Team Room being shot this weekend that'll be on there. Um, You know, as soon as it's in post-production and all that, but we are going to shoot it this weekend. Uh, So take advantage of a limited time offer of $4.99 a month at specopschannel.com. And you can watch everything on the app, which is great. Uh, So whether you're iOS or Android... You can check that out, the Spec Ops Channel app. Appreciate you guys checking out this episode. And before we go, I already did a throw punch of the week this week, but I will do a second one that I've been meaning to do, and I, I forgot about it because um, I, I, while I was in Pittsburgh, I read the story. Um, let me take a sip of my water real quick. <laughs> there is no water on this show, Ian. After doing, you know, like the live read part. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So if you're a listener of Power of Thought, you've definitely heard Brandon tell this story before. So he met Fat Mike from No Effects and definitely got into a verbal confrontation with him <laughs> as Fat Mike called him an asshole because uh, Brandon said he didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And at that point, Brandon was like, from his words, he said, you don't know me from Adam. Like, you don't know anything about me. Uh, and you're going to judge me based on, you know, politics. There's a ton of reasons why I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton, you know, losing his friend Glenn Doherty and Benghazi, among a lot of other things. And, uh, yeah, he just said, like, it was a lesson in that people need to, you know, have some civil discourse. And I think it all ended okay. but it was just like you can't go up to someone and call them an asshole based on who they did or didn't vote for. I mean, I'm su- not to defend uh, our throat punch of the week candidate, but I mean, I'm surprised he actually had the stones to say that to his face because when I have these conversations, people talk tough on the internet, but they will not say stuff like that to you in person. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Um, I wish they would. Yeah. I, you know, I, I do agree with that because yeah, it's, it's more civil one-on-one yeah because like when you're a man it's known that there are certain limits that if you cross it's gonna be a fist fight do you ever see the the picture before i tell you why this is throw a bunch of the week but you ever see the it's a meme of a guy it's like a hipster looking kid in a bernie sanders shirt and it's all bernie sanders face all over the shirt and he's like in the face of a like big biker guy, a big Trump guy. And it says like that moment you realize you're not arguing on the Internet anymore. <laughs> you ever see that? No, no. I, I want to see if I can pull it up really quick because <laughs> uh, it's a funny meme. Uh, but uh, so the reason uh, I, I'm mentioning that story, though, with Fat Mike, it seems like this guy uh, has a habit of opening his mouth, saying things that he absolutely shouldn't in this case. This was extremely disrespectful and in bad taste, would put it lightly. Uh, so No Effects was playing a show in Vegas, and they referenced the Vegas mass shooting, which is the you know the biggest mass shooting in history of uh, you know of that type of caliber. Which we're still finding more and more about it. It's interesting, but anyway, at the concert, he said uh, that at least the people killed were country fans and not punk rock fans, and it's like what a douchey thing to say and also it's like the, you go to a country concert you go to a punk rock concert which you know i've been to all different types of shows these are the same type of people looking to escape the monotony of everyday life um i i really don't see these as as different people and uh it, it's you know just talk about divisive that it's like you're, do, you're they, doing it wrong ian you're supposed to plant yourself in the ground and just damn everybody else who isn't you that's yeah. how this is done man yeah and so it I mean, to to look at someone as a lesser 
form of life, I guess, because of the music. Subhuman country music. Yeah, is is really (laughs) absurd. And it probably does play into politics because, you know, you think country fans, you think Trump supporter, you think punk rock fans, you think. Uh, you know, most likely a that's Hillary I, voter or Bernie Sanders. Oh, that's Sanders that's totally what I think, man. Punk fans are voting for Hillary. They're not voting for Trump. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I I don't hang out with like at punk shows often enough to be able to say. But. I would I would say more so a Bernie Sanders maybe, supporter than maybe. a Hillary supporter. Yeah, I mean it'd be fair to say. But I do. Is that what punk has come to? Is they're voting for establishment candidates now? And, well, you know it's funny. Andrew, our friend Andrew Wilkow, would would who's a big punk rock guy, would talk about that all the time. That to him, punk rock is all about anti-establishment, yeah. about anarchy. But at the same time, I wouldn't exactly say Trump represents you know anarchy uh do whatever well, you want well that's that's that well that's the interesting thing is why did people vote for trump is it because he was establishment or was it because he was anarchy and they saw him as you know some yeah like like send this guy to dc so he can burn the place to the ground yeah you know just destroy the it was like a way to like fuck the system right which is very punk yeah. destroy the system Anyway, we're we're going all over the place. And you here. got me talking but, about <laughs> Trump again. Ian. Yes, again. The, the the main point I want to make is yeah, Fat Mike throw punch of the week, <laughs> ridiculous statement. Uh, I'm pretty sure he hasn't apologized or anything. But you know what? At the same time, if if you really feel that way, I don't think you should apologize. I'm tired of fake apologies. Uh, that it's an I'm apology culture, man. It's embarrassing. Yeah, stick but, to your guns. I respect that. I, yeah, I do respect that, but it's an absurd statement to it make. Is. Um, and you know, it was just a horrible thing that happened. There's no, there's absolutely no acceptable way to to view, um, people going out for a night in Vegas, seeing a country show and being murdered by someone for no reason. It's as senseless as it gets. Yeah. Um, I don't want to end the show on like a a morbid note. I don't know. Is there anything else to say before we get out of here? Uh, work on your memoir. It, ongoing as usual the painful editing process um what else is going on working on stories working on i'm i guess i said i'm gonna write a, a book re- or i'm sorry a film review um that it was a it's a film a very subversive film that was recommended to me by two retired uh cia officers both of whom are black um and this is like a 1970s film about uh the first uh, it's a fictional film, of course, but it's about the first um, black CIA officer, and uh, things go awry. So, um, so, but I'll write a film review of that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask both of those guys why they love this movie so much. I loved it as well, um, but I'll, I'll write that film review. Um, and then there's you know my this this one story I've been chipping at away at little by little. I hope I can start writing it soon. Um, but hard at work on all that. Cool. All right, we'll pick up Andy Grant's book and uh, pick up Matthew Betley's book. Plenty of great stuff to check out um, in the military community, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Uh, a lot of great authors hard at work. And uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, speaking of Bernie Sanders, because we don't want to get... I don't know who's who's ahead right now, Oscar Bernie Sanders. Leave us show. some more hate reviews. Jack no, Mur- that doesn't help. Jack Murphy <laughs> is lording over us like some like we're feudal serfs. <laughs> um, let's see. Now I just want to know out of curiosity. I think, because I if- think those people are just intimidated by my beard. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's what it is. I'd have to check. But anyway, we're always neck and neck with uh, Bernie Sanders for whatever reason. And those five-star reviews really help. Like I said, I, I read them all. And if they're, you know, real suggestions, not that Jack Murphy is, you know, the most elitist man on earth. I uh, <laughs> Most elitist man Yeah, it's not earth. even correct English. <laughs> most elite man on earth. Um, you know, I, I read them. I take them into account. I, I appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, now, I'm just curious now who's ahead. So I'm going to stall this podcast to let you know. Uh, currently, Bernie Sanders is ahead of us. Not good. Not good, folks. Socialism so, is winning. Yeah, leave us Listen to that. a review. Thank you. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. 
And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.